the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to a rainy Wednesday show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you've tuned in to AM630 The Word, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and life questions based on what the Bible tells us to do. Whatever is on your heart and mind, we'll do the best that we can. All you need to do is call us, dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, it's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And because we want you to be safe, today, if you're driving in your car, use the free KSLR mobile app. There's just one button to push, and then using the hands-free feature of your phone, you can talk and drive safely at the same time. We would love to have your phone calls and questions. Hey, because it's Wednesday, a couple of things. The first and the most obvious is that means tomorrow's Thursday. And Paula will be live in studio with us on the date day edition of the program. Um, tonight, uh, we have our Old Testament um, Bible study, Isaiah chapters 23 and 24 tonight. And while chapter 24 may sound a little Blake, there's really some good news in there for those of us who are believers. And there is sort of a charge to duty uh, in these last days. So uh, all of that tonight uh, at 7 o'clock, on, you can watch it at calvarysa.com live stream. It's raining, and lots of people I know won't be able to get out and get here. But calvarysa.com, uh, we just want you to be safe out there in the element. Well, let me get right to questions while we wait your phone calls. Um, Matt says, um, I know you think Jesus said he was God, but if that's true... Why did Jesus say his authority was given to him by God? Well, remember, Matt, that our Godhead is made up of three persons. One God, but three persons. Not three gods. Not one plus one plus one equals three, but one times one times one equals one. And yet there's different personalities, different persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus came to earth, this is maybe sometimes a little hard for us to grasp, But Philippians chapter 2 says that he didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to or something to be grasped. He was equal to God. Jesus was God. But in his incarnation as a human, to set an example for you and for me, he did everything in submission to the will of his Father. So when it says that his authority was given to him by God, it was given to him by his Father. And Jesus didn't act independently of his father. He only said what he heard his father say, and he only did what he saw his father do. But everything that Jesus did, Matt, was done in obedience to his father, and, I would add, done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, 
um, over and over, man, it's not just in this particular case, over and over in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus is God. Jesus makes all of the I am statements, um, you know, the, the Jewish religious leaders who were in opposition to him were plotting his murder because they said out of their own lips, now these are Jesus's accusers, out of their own lips, they said, we're stoning you because you, a man, make yourself equal to God. You see, they understood what Jesus was saying. And so over and over and over, we also have instances in the New Testament epistles that Jesus is, in fact, God. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. That's exactly the description of God in the Old Testament. He is the living water. He is the door. He is the way. Over and over and over, Jesus said that he was God. So, um, why did he surrender his authority? To teach us to be obedient. To teach us how to thrive in a world filled with pain and difficulty. Jesus did it, and now we can do it. And we can do it because he did it for us first. Um, Jennifer, I've got some contrary questions here today. Jennifer says, how is it not sexist to forbid a woman from being a pastor when she clearly has the gift of teaching? Jennifer, uh, nobody forbids a woman from being a pastor. I can't. um, uh, It's not necessary because God already has. In his word, 1 Timothy chapter 2, I do not permit a a woman to to, to preach or to uh, teach or have authority over a man. It's that simple. And the context there is the order in the church. It's, it's the, the, the sort of the ground rule for the church of which Jesus is the head. So, if you think it's sexist to forbid a woman from being a pastor, you've got to deal with God on that. Jesus is the head of the church. I think you need to be willing to go to Jesus and say, you're a sexist, Jesus, and I can't believe that you would discriminate against women. Now, most of the time we don't do that because we know better. But the reality, Jennifer, is that it's his church. We're his servants. We have no opinions that matter. We have no rights to our own opinions. Jesus makes the rules. We don't get to reinterpret them. We don't get to view them through a cultural lens. All we have is the choice to obey or disobey. Plain and simple. And if Jesus says, I do not permit a woman to teach her of authority over a man in the church, and since he is the head of the church, well, then we have to agree with him. And Jennifer, you know, I get this question a lot, and I am always a little bit flummoxed by the fact that Christians will so quickly judge God. The God who loved them so much that he died for them, that he he endured the agony of the cross because he loved you so much. And for you to level the charge of sexism at the one who died for your sins, at the one who said in his word, there is no Jew nor Greek, no male or female, no free or slave. In other words, everybody's on equal ground. It's a pretty serious charge to level at Jesus. So you're not saying I'm sexist because I said it. You're really accusing him. Now, a couple of things. Why do you suppose, Jennifer, it is that the only thing, the only role in the church that was prohibited from women is the one role that they're going after, that they're striving for? And I mean that in a general sense. Obviously, not everybody, but there's a lot of women that call this program who think they've been called to be a pastor. Why do you think that is? Well, go all the way back to the garden when God said to Adam and Eve, I give you every tree, everything in this garden is perfect and it's yours to enjoy. There's just this one tree that I'm going to place in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember, at that time they knew only good. And with all those other trees, equally delicious, equally beautiful, Why do you think Eve wanted that one tree? 
fruit from that one tree. You think it's flesh? So Jennifer, what you've got to do is decide. As a Christian, it's your job to agree with Christ. And these are his rules. Second thing I want to point out, and I'll finish with this one, is women clearly have been given the gift to teach. And it's a wonderful gift. But Jesus is simply asking them to use the gift that is a free gift from God. We did nothing to deserve it. He's saying, use that gift for my glory. And here's what you can do. You can teach other women. You certainly could teach children of all ages. You can counsel, which is really... But let me rephrase, it ought to be really only a teaching ministry. Because a lot of people think they're gifted to counsel, but they're not counseling out of the Word of God. And what we need to do is understand that the, the wise counsel, the wonderful counselor, is Jesus. And I've said this before in this program, we've got a bunch of women here at Calvary Chapel who are undeniably gifted to teach. I actually think there's a couple of female Bible teachers here at Calvary Chapel that are better teachers than I am. But you see, because they know the Word, they're content to teach the Word given the limits that God has given them. And they're thriving in their walk with the Lord. And the fruit that's being produced from their ministry is enormous. The minute one of those women would say, well, I think I should be able to teach on a Sunday to the church at large, or I think I could be a pastor, well, then they forfeited their right to use that gift for the glory of God because they're instead taking that gift for their own glory. So Jennifer, I think the most difficult thing you've got to deal with here is how could you possibly accuse Jesus of being sexual? 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a, an anonymous question. It says, uh, God hates divorce, so how can someone counsel a Christian who is gay to divorce his husband? Now, I think this question is a response to a question that we had uh, on last week's program. Uh, somebody wanted to know what to do uh, if, if they've already married um, a same-sex partner. And my counsel was to divorce them. Um, God does hate divorce, but what God hates equally is the sin that would have created a same-sex marriage. That's not a marriage made of God. That's not something done by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's something done because people want to rebel against God. And anonymous, it's pretty simple. You, you can't say, well, I'm married now, so it's okay. I can have sex with somebody of the same gender because we're married. Um, it doesn't matter what the, the the law says. It doesn't matter what the state says. It doesn't matter what your friends or neighbors say. What matters is what God says, and God simply does not recognize a marriage between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. It's that simple. And again, the issue is not with me, Anonymous. The issue is with the Word of God. The issue is with God himself. And the one thing that we want to do every time we sin, in order to get right with God, we need to repent of that sin. And the way that we repent of that sin is to ask for forgiveness first and then do whatever we can to throw that sin out of our lives. And in this particular case, if you are a legally married person to somebody of the same gender, you have committed a grievous sin in the eyes of God. And what you would then do is undo that. If you're legally married, then get a legal divorce or an annulment or whatever is recognized where you are. But as Christians, Anonymous, we have to counsel people. Paul says in writing to the Church of the Hebrews, because of everything that God has done and his desire to walk with us, we're to throw off everything that hinders our walk and the sin that's so easily entangled. And certainly, 
same-sex marriage is hindering your walk with Lord, you've been cut off from fellowship with God. And it's sin, and that sin gets you all tangled up. And God wants us to walk in freedom. So that's why I gave that counsel. Here is a question from Jeffrey. I like this one. It says, what does it mean that Christ is our Sabbath rest? I ask because I don't understand. Jeffrey, a couple of things. Um, You know, um, Christ is our rest from trying to do things on our own to please God trying to justify ourselves before God. You know, the Sabbath was a, a day of rest. Um, we know that the Jews tangled it all up and, and you know, got the wrong idea about what God was saying. But for you and for me, I, I don't have to be good or do good. I can rest in Christ who is already done what's good. So what it means is we found our rest our rest from self-effort, our rest from self-promotion, our rest from trying to figure things out on our own, and every one of us can rest in Christ. Hebrews chapter 4 speaks very clearly about Jesus being our Sabbath rest and not a day of rest, but, but our rest for every day. And I love the fact that I don't have to wake up in the morning and start striving to do something good for Jesus. Jesus, I want to make you proud of me today. Jesus, how can I bless you today? I don't have to do any of that. Because we rest in the fact that he's taken away all my sins, that he's given me the power of his Holy Spirit, the presence of his Holy Spirit. And I can simply walk with him, just be with Jesus, and that's about as pleased as he can get. So Jeffrey, I was talking to a pastor from another church uh, yesterday, in fact, and um, we were talking about a guy on, on his worship team, and, and uh, he, he made the statement, said, you know, that's kind of the only thing he does. It's his thing. He loves to do music and loves to worship, but he's not too involved in the church otherwise. Um, I should think for a moment about that. If Jesus is our rest, shouldn't we then, resting in him, live lives that are pleasing to him? And the only way I know to do that is to be with him every day, approach him every morning with, okay, Lord, what about me and what about today? But it's not trying to do stuff. It's just being with him and being involved in where he is. I think a lot of us as Christians, we want to get really involved in something and we expect Jesus to bless what we're doing. Instead, the blessing comes to us. And the blessing comes to us when we simply, rather than him getting involved in what we're doing, we immerse ourselves in what he's doing. And if we'll do that, Jeffrey will rest. And I've counseled lots and lots and lots of people over my 24 years here as a pastor. And most often we see people really trying hard to please God. And we don't have to try hard. Why? Because we can rest in Christ. So that's what it means that Christ is our Sabbath rest. A rest from our own work. A rest from uh, our own efforts to please Him. Just simply walking with the Lord. 340-9585 Here's a question that just came in anonymously to our email inbox. Um, Starts out with my opinion. History channels the story of Jesus was wrought with inaccuracies and an obvious liberal bent from the so-called experts' comments in between the story. A few of their comments got my dander up. Uh, I had no interest in watching it and was disappointed that this was shown at a church community group I attend. Wow, now I'm, I'm surprised as well. Um, but before I go into the, the, uh, the rest of your, your letter, um, when you find something on Discovery Channel or History Channel or, or, or NPR or any of those other stations, about Jesus, the historical Jesus, the story of Jesus, it's always going to be skewed because it's being told by unbelievers. You know, it's sort of like Jesus sitting down and writing you a love letter, and by the way, he has his word, 
and you read that 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 Bible, and 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 he's he's speaking to your heart, and you know it's a love letter from him, and then an unbeliever picks up that letter and starts to read to say, "I don't get it." Well, the answer is because they're reading somebody else's mail that the mail was intended for them. And whenever you see something on these television stations about Jesus, then it's simply going to be a bunch of unbelieving liberal scholars. They've got PhDs behind their name. But believe me, these people are not saved. They're not born again. And if I went to a church that showed that series, at a church communion group, as a pastor, I would be so upset. Uh, it's misrepresenting the Lord. It causes people to stumble. Uh, and then he goes on, or she goes on to, to say, several of those intents were poo-pooing this farce and were also concerned that if new Christians watch this, it can be very misleading. We brought up our points after it was viewed and hoping next week they will scrap the last part of the movie. Just wanted your thoughts. If you heard about the movie Blessings, you and Paula and the rest of your fellowship. Thank you, Anonymous. Um, I, I think I answered those questions for you. Um, I, I've seen the television commercials for the movie, uh, for the series. Uh, however, um, I, I knew exactly what to expect. And I agree with you that it can be very inappropriate in a church setting simply because there are going to be people there who are going to be able to be stumbled. Imagine a church-sponsored event that's almost like putting the good housekeeping seal of approval on something. Now, just saying that I aged myself considerably. But the idea is, well, my pastor blesses this, or my church thinks this is okay. And a new believer is going to be confused by that. The whole series is sending out mixed messages about Jesus. And from our pulpit, we're supposed to be getting a strong, consistent message about not only who God is, but about what he's done, and then how we should respond to what he's done. And um, uh, I would be very concerned. Uh, you say this was shown at a church community group. Uh, if I were you, Anonymous, I would go to my pastor and say, uh, I'm sure you didn't know about this, but this was shown at our church community group, and it's just not something... Uh, that I think should have been shown, so now I'll leave the ball in your court. And by the way, his response to that uh, will tell you a whole lot about what he thinks about the Word of God. So Anonymous, thanks for saying that. I'm sorry you had to look at that. Uh, here's a question I can ask quickly. I think we're inside about three or four minutes. Willie said, how could Jesus die if he was God? Well, we have to remember, Willie, that Jesus had two natures. He was human, but he was also divine. So he was the God-man. He always will be 100% man, 100% God. And while that's admittedly difficult for us to understand, it simply means that this was such a supernatural birth. He couldn't be born the ordinary way. A man impregnating a woman this had to be a man who was born who could be perfect, and the only one that could, could do that would be the Son of God. So Jesus was a man, and really he died in his humanity. He never stopped being God. Uh, he didn't die as God. You're right, God cannot die. Um, but he died as a human, and he did that to be a sacrifice. He was punished for your sins and mine. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So after taking the punishment that your sins and mine deserved, Willie, Jesus allowed himself to be crucified. Remember, there were 12 legions of angels, he was told, or, or he said that were at the beck and call. All they'd do is say, help, and they'd have been right there. The problem is, he knew if he did that, he'd lose you and me. So that's exactly what he did, Willie. He died because he wanted you in heaven. He wanted me in heaven. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So don't worry. God didn't die on that cross. But the Son of Man died on that cross. And when he died, he cried out, 
It is finished. The work was completely done. And from that moment forward, access to heaven was open. You know, Willie, we've only got a minute or so left. I want to share with you. I always think about that veil in the temple, the one that separated the most holy, the holy place from the holy of holies. Um, it was torn from top to bottom as though God himself tore that veil. And suddenly, for the first time, the Jews in and around the temple in Jerusalem were able then to see the Ark of the Covenant. They were able to see the Holy of Holies. And they would have thought they had to die, but because God had made access available to them, it was a signal that there was a new order. Everything had changed because of that access. So Willie, don't worry, God never died, but the Son of Man did, and we live because he did. You can hear the music. We have 30 minutes left in the program. The phones are quiet. We'd love your live calls and questions. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program it's wednesday and just sort of a heads up i've been told during the break that um, some of our listeners are having a really hard time hearing nothing but static and others are saying they're hearing nothing at all uh, we're going to keep doing the program. I'm, I'm hopeful that, that there are people out there who can hear me. Uh, but I'm going to save the questions. If your question that you sent in, uh, you couldn't hear it answered, let us know um, um, just by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, and we'll be sure that we save the questions and come back and get them on a day when the weather is better and we're not having these problems. Hopefully... Um, you can hear me, and uh, if you have a question, we'd love to have you call at 340-9585. Here's a question from Dwayne. He asks, how can I have strong enough faith to trust God when I can't figure out what to do? Um, Dwayne, don't worry about figuring out what to do. That, that's the opposite of trusting God. And I think this is really a stumbling block for a lot of us. And Dwayne, I find this more with men than women. You know, we have to have answers. We have to know what we're doing. We don't want to fail. So we have to figure out a way. Faith is walking without knowing which way. Trusting God is actually being with Jesus and letting him lead and guide. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Uh, Paul writes to the church at Philippi, He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And when you're trying to figure out what you need to do, uh, the question we had earlier about rest applies. There's no rest in that. The idea is we have to get up every day and actively trust Jesus. Now, clearly, Dwayne, you trusted Jesus to save your soul. Well, how about, and I'll use just tomorrow as an example. How about getting up and trusting him for Thursday? Instead of you having to know what to do, how about just being with Jesus? And letting him figuratively take your hand and lead you and guide you through life. That's what he wants to do. That's what real faith is all about. That's faith for living. And because you trusted God for your salvation, I am certain you can trust him for tomorrow. So if your faith is strong, and by the way, that's weak faith. It's like Gideon throwing out the fleeces. The Lord do this. He knew what God had told him to do. And then even when the first test was answered, the first fleece, he, he said, now excuse me, Lord, but I'm going to ask one more time. And then he said, do just the opposite. God did that. Now God met him in that weakness. But make no mistake, that was weak faith that threw out those fleeces. And too often, Dwayne, we who are believers, we want to know what to do. And God wants us to trust him to do what he wants us to do. 
one of the things I can suggest for you, Dwayne, is this. Faith is like a muscle that needs to be exercised. And every time that you are trying to figure out what to do, that faith muscle is atrophying. So instead of you taking matters into your own hands, do nothing, walk with the Lord, and then get on board with whatever it is He's doing. Just tell Him, Lord, I'm yours. I love you and I know you love me, so I'm going to trust you. And instead of you making the decision about what you should do next, you're leaving it in His hands, and that's what real faith is. Very important, Dwayne very important. This is the most important thing. This is Peter saying to Jesus, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come to you on the water. This is the twelve disciples. The feeding of the five thousand. Jesus saying to them, you give them something to eat. And them saying, well, we don't have anything to eat. What are we going to do? We couldn't buy food for all these people. And Jesus just started with what he had. Two fishes and five loaves of bread, little tiny barley loaves of bread. And Jesus gave him the food, he blessed it, and he told him to go out and turn around. Now, if you were trying to figure out what you were going to do, Dwayne, you probably would never turn around. But the minute you turn around and you started giving out the food the way Jesus told you to, you'd be walking right in the middle of a miracle. So let him determine your step. That's what real faith is. Here is another anonymous question that's a little testy. How can you believe the Bible when it promotes slavery and sexism? Here's what I know, anonymous. You haven't really read the Bible. Because the Bible promotes neither slavery or sexism. You're letting the world, the culture that you live in, define terms, redefine terms. And here's what I know. I know that if you really were saved, if you really knew the Word of God, then anytime somebody said the Bible promotes slavery, you'd say it does not. Well, the Bible promotes sexism. It does not. You see, I know that to be true. You don't know the Word well enough to know whether or not It's, it's true or not. It's very, very, very important. So, know what you're talking about. Read the Word. And I'm going to pray that God will change your heart. Jim in San Antonio got through. He said, he's called the, the station. A little while ago you said the day of rest was a was all messed up in the Old Testament? I didn't say that. I said, the Jews messed it up. I didn't say the day of rest. The Sabbath was always intended as a day of rest, physical rest. For Jews, a day of rest from trying to approach God on the basis of keeping rules. So the the, the day of rest, the Sabbath day, was not messed up. It's that Jews messed it up. You remember Jesus saying, uh, to them, you know, you obey the law, you tithe uh, from from uh, even the, the, the spices that you give, but neglect the weightier matters of the law. That's what he's saying. And what Jews did um, then and still now, they will uh, outwardly observe the Sabbath day. But the whole time, rather than meeting with God, they're still trying to approach God. I'll give you a good example here, Jim. Um, I was uh, at a pastor's conference in the hotel that I was staying at. Just so happened to be a hotel um, where there were a whole bunch of Orthodox Jews who were staying uh, during uh, one of the Jewish festivals. And when uh, Friday night came, I was going from my room uh, down to the lobby, and I approached the elevator, and there were a whole bunch of Jewish men standing outside the elevator and they wouldn't push the button to go in. Now, I knew exactly what was going on and so I just sort of came up behind him and said, um, um, 
anybody push the button? And well, well, we can't do that. We're Orthodox and we can't push the button. Would you push it for us? So I pushed the button, walked into the elevator, got to the back. And then I thought I'd have a little fun with them. When they all got in, there was probably 11 or 12 of us. And then I said, um, one, please. And then they looked at me, oh, that's right, you can't push the button. You see, they think that's observing the Sabbath. That's not what observing the Sabbath is at all. The Sabbath was about a heart. The Sabbath wasn't about keeping rules. So, listen carefully, Jim. The Sabbath day, as prescribed by God, wasn't messed up. It's that the Jewish people messed it up By forgetting what it was all for. So God wanted to have a day of rest. Well, what they did is try to figure out a way to get out. Another example. There's a uh, um, reference to a Sabbath day's journey in the New Testament. Now, generally speaking, and this is not exact, but generally speaking, it was about a fifth of a mile. And Jews at the time determined it was okay with God, not a violation of the Sabbath, of, of the Sabbath law, to, to walk away from their house a fifth of a mile. And because they wanted to go farther than that, the way they went around the laws, they'd put up pieces of wood. Uh, we, we get our, our phrase lean to from it. Um, they would have a, a wood, piece of wood lean against the house, then another one and another. And they'd build these elaborate structures so that, that their house would be farther away, and it would enable them to walk farther. And somehow they thought, well, that would be pleasing to God. That's just one example of what I meant. So, Jim, I hope that clarifies things for you. Thank you for calling. Uh, our broadcast is fine transmitting 5 by 5 I don't know what that means. A lightning strike affected one of our towers, but we're back. Okay. So that was the station this time, so we're back. Thank you for that. Um, There's a question from Alex. Why did God put the tree in the garden with Adam and Eve if he didn't want them to have it? Why tempt them with it? Um, Alex, the same reason temptation is left in your life and in mine. Uh, The reason that that tree was placed in the garden was to force Adam and Eve to make a choice. No, God could have mandated that they follow him. God could have said, you have to love me, you have to do what I say, I'm going to make you do it. But that wouldn't be a relationship. That would be just sort of uh, a, a forced love. So God gave them a test. And make no mistake, every temptation in our lives is a test. God said, I've made all this beautiful stuff for you. And Adam and Eve would have looked around and said, oh, this is magnificent, this garden is beautiful. And you can eat from any tree but the one tree. And this tree contains something that none of the others do. This tree has the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, at that point, they've known only good. And so when the opportunity came to have some knowledge about evil, and then, of course, Satan was there, sort of to facilitate the temptation... That was a test, and it's a test, as we know, they failed miserably. So God leaves temptations in all of our lives to find out who we really love. Do we love us, or do we love him? Now, God knows the answer, God knows the result, but you see, we don't. I'm sure that if you'd asked Adam and Eve before uh, Eve went over near that tree and convinced Adam to come, I'm sure if you asked them the day before, do you think you're ever going to eat from that tree? No, God said, don't do it. But the moment they were tempted to do it, at that moment, that was their first test. And the test was to find out who they loved. Another test, Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham was told to sacrifice his only son, God had no intention of Isaac dying. But Abraham, you see, had become a little enamored with the son that was the gift of God, in fact, more so than the giver of the gift, and it was time for God to test his heart. Let's see who he loves more. 
And so he said, Abraham, sacrifice your son, your only son. And of course, at the end, he didn't have to do it. God provided himself sacrifice. But then he said, now I know that you love God. And the better translation of that would be, now you know that you love God more than you love your son. Every temptation, Alex, is a test. And if you remember that the next time you're tempted, you don't blame God for putting that temptation in your life. I know a lot of people, Alex, who who pray, God, take away these temptations. God says, you know, I already gave you the power to overcome them. I'm not going to take it away. I'm going to leave it there as a test. I've given you the power to overcome. Let's see who you really love. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. So there's simply there as a test. So Alex, I hope that makes sense to you. Mary says, uh, Pastor on Catholicism teaches that people in heaven can see us. They use Hebrews 12 to prove it. Can I have your thoughts? Uh, Mary, I don't know for a fact that they use Hebrews 12 to prove it, but if you say so, I'll take it your word. But, but to, 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 that's a complete misunderstanding of Hebrews chapter 12. After the great Hall of Fame of Faith chapter in chapter 11, the next chapter, chapter 12, begins with, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses and people presume then that the witnesses means they're witnessing what we're doing here on earth. And that would necessarily mean that they're watching, but that's not what it means at all. The Greek word is martyros. We get our English word martyr from it. And um, what he means is that the Hebrews chapter 11, remember there's no verse and chapter divisions in the, man, in the inspired manuscripts. So what he's saying is, that because we have all of those witnesses to the faithfulness of God who've gone before us. In other words, they're not witnesses of us, they're witnesses to us of God's faithfulness. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, since they did it, you can do it. And that's the, 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 what precedes that we're to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles so that we can run our race with Jesus. So, um, if Catholicism teaches Hebrews 12 as a proof text, they they are badly lacking in hermeneutics. That's not at all what Hebrews chapter 12 says. Remember, they're not watching us, but we can look back and watch them. The Old Testament stories are written to us as examples that we might learn from, so they're witnesses to us. They're not witnessing us. Here's one other thing to think about, Mary. Um, we are for sure um, men and women who see God's faithfulness on a daily basis. All we have to do is remember that with God we can overcome anything. With God, there's nothing that we can accomplish. Not by might nor by power, but by your Spirit, says the Lord. And we can be faithful. And that's all that matters. So my thoughts are those and stay away from the Catholic Church. Andrew asks, Pastor Ron, is there any new revelation coming from God today? If so, how would we know it is from God? Andrew, I'm going to go back to Hebrews again for this one. Um, uh, Hebrews starts off by saying, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us, it's all past tense, he has spoken to us in Son literally everything that he has to say, he's already said to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So that precludes any new revelation. The Bible is the full and final authoritative word of God. There's never going to be any new revelation that comes. Any new revelation that comes will not be true. It will be a revelation from false teachers. 
Um, by the way, in the Great Tribulation, I'm going to be speaking a lot about the Great Tribulation tonight in the Bible study. Uh, in the Great Tribulation, um, um, conditions are going to be such that, that the church now, having been taken away from this earth, um, the world is going to be seduced by lies. And no doubt, there's going to claim there's new revelation from God, and God said this, and God did that, and the spirit of this lie is going to be so powerful, without the Holy Spirit restraining it, that the, the, the lie is going to be accepted. It's a definite article, by the way. It's the lie. Whatever the lie is, it's the one that leads to the great falling away. And um, the way we can settle these issues, you know, somebody comes and say, well, I've got a word from God for you. You can say, no, you don't. Because we have his word. We have his word. One of our problems, Andrew, in our church culture is we got so many um, excessively charismatic churches. Now, again, I want to say we are charismatic here at Calvary Chapel, so um, this isn't just sour grapes. Those guys believe that. We're a charismatic church. Uh, the problem is there's such a lack of emphasis on teaching the Word that the people in the seeds are not being equipped. Because of that, when somebody comes up and claims to be an apostle or claims to be a prophet, then we sort of take the shortcut. Okay, what does God have to say? And when they say, thus saith the Lord, you know, we look at them like they're some specially anointed person. We need to know what God is going to say. So, yeah, tell me, tell me. There's no prophets. There's no apostles today. And if we knew our Bibles, we would know that. So, Andrew, I hope that explained. Uh, Hindel, thank you. Hindel emailed, said she's been listening since 4 o'clock uh, from the Austin area and is we're coming in loud and clear. Thank you very much for that, Hindel. Um, I bet it's raining up there too. If it's not, it's going to be soon. Um, here's an anonymous question. Is the Shroud of Turin really Jesus' burial cloth? Now, if we know our Bibles, then these are other things, and this is another story that gets circulated on uh, the Discovery Channel and History Channel and NPR and those kind of places. Um, the Shroud of Turin is not Jesus' burial cloth. It's a one-piece cloth. We know from the Gospel of John that there were two pieces um, to Jesus' burial cloth. There was one that covered his face and one that, that covered or wrapped around his body. Uh, and so the, the Shroud of Turin, we know, cannot be Jesus' burial cloth, and yet still we got caught up in it. So Anonymous, it is not the burial cloth of Jesus. Um, Cindy called the station with a comment. I think when Satan appeared to Eve to tempt her in the garden, he must have come as an angel of light. Uh, this way he wouldn't have been seen as frightening. Um, Cindy, yeah, I don't know that he would have appeared as an angel of light. We know that he uh, approached Eve uh, in the form of a serpent. Now, we look at a serpent and say, yuck, but, you know, uh, remember as a curse, he was forced to crawl on his belly. So um, uh, it would have been, uh, I think, just knowing Satan's character, I personally think that uh, the serpent was the most beautiful of all of God's creations. I don't think Satan would have inhabited it or, or you, chosen uh, the serpent if it wasn't. Um, we know the devil has a problem with pride. And I think uh, in an unfallen world, at that point the world had not yet fallen. Satan had, but the world hadn't. I think this was just part of the test, and Satan was uh, in a magnificent form. Um, but uh, I, I don't think as an angel of light, because an angel of light would not have to put on airs. An angel of light wouldn't be testing. Now, Satan masquerades today as an angel of light. He will say some things that are so close to the word of God that you really have to have your discernment kicking in. But I think it's a little more straightforward, Cindy, in the garden. Uh, I just think that um, he sort of walked up to Eve in the form of a servant and started communicating with her. And evidently she wasn't shocked at all, and um, and she was deceived. She was beguiled. Thank you for the comment. Well, it's been quiet, but we've had some people calling in. Let me go 
Uh, we're inside three minutes, so let me go uh, to um, maybe the last question of the day. Two minutes now. Uh, Maya says, Maya, I hope it's spelled M-Y-A. I hope I pronounced it right. Um, how do we quench the Holy Spirit? Well, Maya, we quench the Holy Spirit through disobedience, uh, through willful sin. Um, we, we quench the Holy Spirit um, when we give in to fear. Not that we won't be afraid. Fear is a natural part of life. But when God says to do something and we don't do it because we're afraid of how it's going to turn out or maybe we're afraid because we don't know how we're going to accomplish it, then what we find out is that um, um, we've resisted or quenched the Holy Spirit um, who wanted to do something. So I think the better question would be how can we never quench the Spirit of God? And the answer is by just simply being obedient. Walk with Jesus, be with him, um, let him um, be a blessing for go on your own. And sometimes, Maya, it's really, really scary. Say yes and you won't quench the Holy Spirit. Say no to flesh, say no to sin, so you can say yes to Jesus. And you will have full access to the power of the Holy Spirit, the power that raised Christ from the dead. Hey, thank you for... Putting up with the technical problems, the weather's bad outside, please drive carefully. Remember tonight at 7 o'clock, I'll be in Isaiah chapter 23 and chapter 24. Thanks for tuning in to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Beautiful Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.